Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> Welcome to A Word with Tom Merritt. I'm Tom Merritt, and on this show, I get the pleasure and privilege to sit down with some of the smartest, most interesting people in the world to talk about how we think. As I say all the time on the show, uh, none of us can know everything. So how we make shortcuts, what facts we decide to believe, where we get our information is super important. And it's always good to compare notes on how we do that. These are the kind of conversations I had growing up with my grandpa Carl, with my grandma Roxy, sitting in their front room, talking about the the issues of the of the world. I got lots of different ways of looking at the world and great conversations. And it was all leading me to this moment right now. Welcome to the front room, Ruby Justice Tillo. Hi, Tom. Pleasure being here. Hey, thanks for being here, man. Uh, first of all, tell me and the audience uh, a little bit about yourself and, and what you do. Um, I'm a writer and researcher, uh, and I focus very much on the internet. My research is uh, cyber ethnography or the study of digital communities. So oftentimes I have to um, look at not only the place where they dwell, but also the infrastructure surrounding them. So tend to be um, somewhat of a philosopher of technology or just thinker of technology and um, try to do my best to be as, you know, sharp and astute on the different uh, technological issues that are, you know, prominent in our world uh, on a daily basis. Yeah. A, a cyber ethnography is such an interesting term. Like it, it conjures up images of you uh, uh, approaching second life and making contact with, <laughs> with someone in, in the metaverse or something. That is what I do essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Uh, for, for, for this episode, I thought we would use the word humanity as a jumping off point, because I know you talk a lot and you think a lot and research a lot around the interface between technology and humanity. When you use that word humanity, a lot of times it can mean different things. What, what do you think it means for you? It is a very interesting word in that across time, its definition has changed. You know, a very clear example is, uh, you know, there are specific people who are excluded from the concept of humanity throughout history, and it has evolved through time. You know, I have a specific field of research and interest. So when somebody says humanity right now, I think of the challenges or the questions asked about what is a human or what is a being right now. So humanity is an extremely interesting term to be using right now. Yeah. Uh, when you mentioned that it has changed, it reminded me the word for people in, in lots of languages usually, or maybe not even usually, I, I don't really know, but often starts as meaning us, the people in our community, our culture, uh, and not necessarily people from other communities going very far back, but we've expanded it over time to become more and more applicable to the entire species. Does that keep going? Do we expand it? 
beyond what we consider human now? There is this idea, which is like philosophical anthropology, which is, I guess, the study of what constitutes a human. Mm -hmm. And that is a particular point of interest to me because the people that I study and people that I interact with in digital worlds don't always interact with other quote-unquote humans. Mm. They have the capacity to develop relationships, uh, friendships, things that are, when you speak to them, extremely emotional, profound, with things that we would not consider as humans. So should we include those programs within our definition of humanity? That is a question that I'm sort of toying with myself right now. Is there... Can you give me examples of of the kinds of, of relationships you're talking about? Yeah, of course. So a big thing right now is this notion of social robot, which is not so popular in America, but you may have heard in Japan, mm-hmm. they use, you know, maybe robots for elderly care, a lot of sort of person-to-person yeah. interaction There's that a, can in, be in sort an of, airport don't they have like a, a person that can or a person a robot that greets you and helps you around yeah yes exactly and you know this is you know sherry turkle does a lot of research on this professor at mit and she finds that people through nurturance of these creatures are actually able to build very you know deep relationships with them the best example i could also give is if you were growing up in the 90s is tamagotchis mm-hmm in spite of the child knowing that it's not a real thing, the pain you have when it dies, when you lose it, is still very potent and, and true, right? So, Yeah. How is that different? Because I, I imagine it is different. But how is that different from an attachment to, say, a stuffed animal or something that you're imbuing most of its characteristics uh, of personality into it? Then you could you could kind of talk about the evolution of that with dolls that walk and talk and then Tamagotchi and then uh, non-player characters in, in video games. Like, how how is it different now than it has been in the past? Well, the history of automata or, or you know, of these, you know, little robots, I think it's filled with at least astonishment. We're always sort of looking at them with a lot of wonder. What became very apparent to researchers, especially in the 60s, as they worked on computers and they worked with programs that could use text, is that you have the nurturance aspect with something like a Tamagotchi, like a physical object. There's still sort of a certain delineation where you're like, the Tamagotchi doesn't necessarily utilize language. And so there's that separation. A lot of philosophical anthropology is based on our belief that language, at the very least, or our ability to communicate uh, the logos is like quite important and that separates us from other beings or other things. But when you get a program that can write and that can quote unquote speak, it leads you to some sort of unexpected territory. The main example, which some folks may have heard specifically when people are talking about the, the new AI programs right now, we always refer to Eliza, which uh, was a program made by Joseph Weizenbaum in the sixties at MIT. And you know, Weizenbaum did not believe that the program would be convincing because it was faulty and the, you know, the internal software logic was very simple. And yet, he was surprised to see that people would come come by and, and come back. And uh, the anecdote tells that his secretary just thought that this was a real person, mm-hmm. you know, and it became sort of Weizenbaum's thing to sort of 
think and really reflect on how easy it was for people to assume humanity in things that use text or that can speak. Yeah, that I, I actually remember the first time I encountered Eliza. Um, <laughs> it was probably on a pirated floppy disk uh, on a Commodore 64. Uh, no, it was on a Commodore 64. And I remember feeling both ways. I remember feeling like, well, I can tell that it's not really answering me because it's just repeating what I said, but also realizing that, yeah, but if I just kind of let up on that part of me that's looking at that, I can be convinced that I'm I'm talking to somebody. It has the feeling. It satisfies that part of me. I had never really thought about the the similarity between that and when you know you you imbue a stuffed animal with with a personality and it, and it becomes important to you. Uh, and I I think that's that's really telling that Eliza. And if anybody hasn't used Eliza, go look it up. There's lots of emulators out there. You can try it out. The fact that people would have that reaction to something that simple really does explain where we are now with people's reaction to these generative AIs like ChatGPT, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And so my studio works on you know research papers where we try to define what the potential use case, what the potential killer app for new technology would be. And my sort of current believe is that this capacity that, they, that these new programs have to discuss and talk with people will be one of the main use cases because you have sort of in terms of the facts that they can provide you have about 80 percent veracity so you, you probably will still go to google or wikipedia for information but when you have a population that loves to talk at i.e you know human beings are uh, as aristotle said social beings it goes without saying that a social being is driven by sociality. And um, in one of my essays, I say that the the shadow of sociality is also loneliness. And so we fear loneliness and thus we project being or the capacity for sociality on a lot of things around us. Um, And that is something we just can't stop doing. You know, we just see things and assume that they are able to sort of communicate with us because we want to communicate. That is what we are maybe here to put here to do. you know, as many times as, as, as I have said, and as other people have said, like these generative systems are just predictions. They're very good at predicting what words would make sense to come next. Uh, but they're just predictions. There is something visceral when you read its responses and it feels like, no, no, that, that sounds like a person. And do you think that is behind a lot of the, the backlash against them where, People are upset that they're saying things that are wrong confidently, even though everyone who makes these systems is out there saying, yes, don't trust them. They're they're going to get things wrong. People still seem to get very emotional about the fact that they say things wrong with with a sense of confidence. I am very – the idea that you would get information and that information – would be just 100% true is a very new thing. Mm-hmm. You know, usually if you grew up before the internet, your research wouldn't, you know, probably check a book or two to get some information. And there was some, at least a little breath in how we acquire knowledge. And we've been primed really to go on one place and go and find one piece of information and be like, okay, this is Wikipedia. This is true. I even remember when Wikipedia came out, mm-hmm. the teachers being like, oh, don't trust Wikipedia. You still got to go to Encarta 
or whatever, <laughs> like the library. Like Botanica and, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was a big thing because they, people were maybe, they didn't believe that they're cold. They could be only a single source of truth, especially on the internet. And so I think we've carried over that assumption that if something that has the stamp of Microsoft mm. or that is a, a something we see on the news, why would somebody put something out that lies? You know, that, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's wrong to expect that as a consumer. Um, even if they say, Oh, it's not always going to be correct. The last paper that I read, I think it was for the Lambda, the Google, the Google system had about 80% groundedness, which means 80% veracity. Mm. You have similar things with GPT three and GPT four. So four things out of five are going to be true. One out of five is going to be probably a hallucination as they call it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. Actually, no, when you think about it, that's a lot. One out of five, but I think we expect on the internet to be served at the very least a semblance of truth. And if it's not truth, it's ideal ideologically correct. Yeah, you know? Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great point that I, I don't know what the average veracity of my average conversation with my neighbors is. But I wouldn't be shocked if it was around eighty percent. You know, I, I definitely hear people saying wrong things all the time. I I know I've said things that I'm like, oh, that turned out to be wrong. But we're we're more forgiving in that interpersonal relationship than we are with the machine. And and I I I, I was really fascinated by what you said about the authority. Right? It, oh, it's coming from a machine. We give it extra authority. Is that something we can get over? Is that something we just need to untrain ourselves from? Or is it just endemic and, and we need to adapt to it differently? The truth of the matter is, is that we see the internet as this repository of knowledge. And mm -hmm. when we ask a machine that is connected to the internet a question, we assume it can go and retrieve that information. That's just, that's one of the affordances of the internet is that yeah. a lot of knowledge is on it and through Google, whatever, you can access that knowledge. I think it's, you know, speaking as a designer, it's a bit of a design flaw, right? In the same way that a cigarette package would have indication on, you know, what the risk or dangers might be. There may be some more salient features or more salient design as to the fact that it is a tool in testing. This is not a factual, you know, what they, the, what the AI says is not factual. They say it a little bit, you know, it says in the fine print, it, it, yeah. it says a little bit, but it's not, it, it is not a prominent feature of the design of the interface of these programs. It's not a habit for us yet. I guess that's what I'm yes. wondering is like, can we, can we turn it into a habit of like, Oh no, that's, that's, that's a chatbot. Of course I don't trust everything it says. I, there's something about also the maybe post fake news moment where these two things might converge and push us to a culture of double checking. Mm -hmm. We spend the last, you know, six since some um, seven years since some, um, um, the election of, 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 of Trump just being well aware that things or the media or by the way, that was the case before that as well, but it became salient yeah. in the magnifying mask got put on it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That um, the things we read were not always sure. And people became very adamant about, you know, uh, saying I got the fact checkers and there's a whole choreography of mm -hmm. people looking at things that people say to make sure that they were true. And, Potentially, one of the positive effects of that is that 
if we identify as a culture that both the information we get from the media might be wrong and the information we get from the internet might be wrong and the information we get from AI chatbots might be wrong, might push us to a culture of double checking, verifying. But of course, the onus is on the user. And the user is a person with limited amount of time. And one can assume that they will only check things that are super important to them. Yeah. Humanity is the most frequently exploited vulnerability. <laughs> um, I hope that it's a habit we can learn, like like you're saying. I, I really do. Uh, I do still find, and I will not exempt myself, uh, I, I have been a victim of it recently, where I didn't fully double check a source and I know I should have, but I just wanted to believe the thing so much. Uh, that I was like, oh, I'm sure it's true. I, I catch people doing that all the time. Most of the time, it's not with very important stuff. Most of the time, it's like, uh, you know, is, is this person from a band going to show up at a basketball game? Or is this album going to drop on this date? Uh, things that, you know, don't have a lot of consequence. Uh, and maybe that's why my guard goes down, because there isn't as much consequence to being wrong. But it also reminds me that, like, there's a part of you that just will know better and and your your brain will tell you to ignore it because it just really wants it to be true yeah and definitely some of our biases are being exploited here uh we have a confirmation bias and so if we believe something or have an inkling that something may be true we will seek information that confirms it yeah and one thing that's very interesting about these programs and one of the reasons why maybe the hallucinations are happening is that when they are when they go through human verification, I'm not sure whether or not people know this, but this is all within the papers that they publish with each version comes out. This is specific for Google's Lambda, but they check the veracity of a statement once uh, the human checkers uh, like disagree. And the way they check whether it's true is that they get uh, you know five or six people to probably a, an, an odd number, five people, and then three extra verifiers need to come in and sort of assert the veracity of that fact or that statement. Now, of course, you know, the question is, is this sort of, is, is the epistemy of this, um, you know, correct? Are we doing the right process of truth verifying? Are these three individuals, as was now revealed, who are paid maybe $2, $2.40 an hour, <laughs> often in third world countries, that information came out uh, recently about some of the Turks that do a lot of that checking work. Do we believe that those three individuals actually are, you know, doing the best job or can assert the truth of a, of a fact that may be contentious? Yeah. What's the margin uh, of error of those three people, right? Exactly. I think that we will always have a confirmation bias, whether it's in a book, mm-hmm. trying to remember something, we'll look and we'll always pick the one that, you know, affirms whatever we believe in already but you know maybe this is a thing where we from education with children inculcate that they should from a very young age an adult says something well maybe you google it you go in a book and you do something else and that's maybe a new system of sort of knowledge that we yeah teach people from a very young age yeah that's that that's a really good point is that it's harder for those of us who didn't grow up with that tool uh, so ubiquitous to to deal with it than someone who grows up with it always having been there, you know, 
I, I can remember grandparents talking about, well, you can't believe everything you see on TV and young me thinking like, well, of course not. Like who thinks that way? But TV was new for them. It had not been there all of their lives. And so they, they were dealing with that. And I think there's a, there's a similar thing going on with us now where those of us who, who are lucky enough to be able to grow up with the tool all the time, will will adapt to it faster, I think. Yeah. And it'll be very interesting to see the new generation and how yeah. they use the tools. Of course, teachers are already worried um, because one of the things that, you know, you can use it to write essays uh, and you may have seen some of these instances where yeah, not yeah. only will write the essay, they'll provide the sources, you know, which were used in the essay. And I think it can fool some teachers, but there's a few teachers I've seen on Twitter who check the sources. Like this person never wrote this book <laughs> and this page is not that this information. Yeah. This is all made up. Um, and, you know, I'm, su- I'm sure some people are getting away with it because who's, who has time to check the 20 sources in each bi- bibliography of each of your students? But, yeah. Um, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who is a high school teacher uh, who's been asking me about ChatGPT a lot uh, specifically, and I was I was he was like, "What should I tell my students about it?" And I was like, "Well, we'll tell them that it's not accurate, that it's it's just a a, a good uh, simulator of language, uh, and and so you can use it to do a first draft, but I would but if you want it to be correct." you're going to have to do the research and polishing of it. Uh, and he, he was happy to hear that on his end of like, Oh good. That, that kind of helps me be able to identify uh, when, when people have done it themselves or not, because I think we'll do also possibly tell me what you think of this, develop an, a, an ear for the tone as well, of mm. whether a human has written it or not. There is a certain sterility, right? It's like a, corporate speech mm-hmm. very very standard um i think sydney the microsoft one had a had a some sharpness to it uh-huh. uh, it it sounded um it sounded a bit more temperamental um from the excerpts that i read in the new york times so i think in the same way that we can identify accents Oh, you're from Brooklyn. You're from this mm. place, but all within the English language. Perhaps we'll be able to identify. Oh, that is Bard. Oh, that is Sydney. That is Chad GPT. Yeah. Um, and they'll develop this, you know, vernacular or these, uh, you know, sy- syntax, um, um, syn- 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 uh, syntactic idiosyncrasies that will be like, oh, that was the tell or that was the right. Because we can do that with authors sometimes already. If, yep. if somebody ghost writes, they get they can get caught out. Um, I, I, yeah, now that you're saying it, chat GPT kind of feels like they belong in marketing and, and Sydney or Bing, uh, does feel more like management. They're, they're, they're a little sharper. Uh, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that until you said that. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, going, going back to the intersection of us with these tools... 
uh, and what defines humanity. And, and, and when we were talking about, you know, the definition, what is the definition of humanity and where's the border? Um, a lot of people are worried that, you know, the machine is going to take our jobs, but a further development of this down the road could be integration with the machine, having, having something that, that works within yourself is, is, am I going too far out on a limb there? Or is that, is that a potential you think about having the assistant living in your head? The head thing is going to be, um, um, I think it's going to be a little while just because of the, the the regulation. Um, But anything like an add on like glasses, I've Mm -hmm. seen prototypes already of, you know, the, if the, um, a small computer or even like a clunky Raspberry Pi is connected to the internet, and then you're able to just ping the API, get information back, and you could see it within your um, sort of extended or mixed reality headset. Uh, that is not unbelievable. Now, the question, I saw someone use that uh, in the context of maybe of a job interview, and they, they, they were joking that it might be like a Riz, uh, like a Charisma uh, yeah. enhanced sanctifice. What I was thinking the whole time was like, this is like um, Cyrano de Bergerac, you know, it was like that the play where the guy doesn't know what to say to the yeah. to, to the woman, but there's Cyrano in the back who is just like, and until these are like adopted in mass, it'll feel weird to see someone at least at the wearable stage. It'll, I think it'll it'll feel like there's a separation if you know that they might be getting information as they're speaking. Mm-hmm. Of course, with a brain implant, as you mentioned, that's a whole other level where it may be hidden, right? Right. But the first stage will make it difficult, I believe, for the people who are wearing it to interact with other human beings. In the same way that, you know, you go to the restaurant, you put your phone in your bag, your friends might say, hey, just take the gla- take the take the chat, the, the AI chatbot glasses off, you know? Let's just talk one-to-one right now. Yeah. Well, and I think we already see that with smartphones, so it makes sense that that would carry on where people are like, can you put your phone down and talk to me? Uh, it gets harder when the glasses are on your face, I guess. No. Yeah. And the integration I think is going to be, is will a hundred percent have a lot of industrial or commercial uses. A lot of the emails we respond to, we could provide CAD answers, mm-hmm. a something like bar that's connected to our calendar can provide availabilities. Yeah. And this should provide like a marginal improvement in, at least white collar worker productivity. Now, the big thing is, you know, knowledge workers are going to lose their jobs because you can write copy for a marketing site. You can, you know, send your newsletter or whatever. Yet, it seems to me that, at least in the marketing side of things, it forgets, I guess, the, the essence of marketing is differentiation. And unless we have a hundred different models, it would seem unwise for a company to decide to like fire the marketing team that had developed a voice and a specific tone and then just shift it to chat GPT when a thousand of the companies are doing it. So you would really need to find a model that is fine tuned to your specific voice. Maybe you, you know, you're like, a, you know, Imagine ChatGPT with a with a Zoomer plugin that you know mm-hmm. transfers all the language to something that's like hip and cool. Yeah. So you know maybe that's in the works. Maybe that's that's being worked on. But you will definitely need some like fine tuning to identify a proprietary voice which will define your brand or your company. Because that's the reason why you hire human copywriters that nobody else can copy 
the thing that you're doing. So that's my perspective, at least on the the, the writing side of things, the creative writing side of things. It, it strikes me to be very similar to what happened with accounting, where the tedious part of accounting was automated uh, by software, but there was still a necessity for analysis to be done by humans. Now, maybe the the analysis can now be done by the, these more sophisticated machines, but there's a, an element of creativity that you still can't get out of the machines that I think is going to be important. I'm not saying that the same thing will happen with marketing writers that happened with accounting where you ended up with just as many, if not more, employees that may or may not happen. But I don't think it eliminates the entire need for it because – yeah, the 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 business wire press release that that is mechanical that can be done easily by a machine, uh, but the brand and the and the choices of wording and, and slogans and stuff those are always done by a committee anyway. You're you I don't I don't see that culture handing it over to a machine because they would never hand it over to to someone to even a human to just crank out. Yeah, and the nature of something like. A tax, uh, a tax act, is not as cut and dry as we assume it to be. Mm-hmm. Of course, now the you know GPT four can pass the LSAT and right. uh, potentially can read you know old cases and provide summaries, but there's still a level of judgment that needs to be exercised. Perhaps the the acceleration or the increase in productivity will be around instead of having to read a hundred jurisprudence cases, you just summarize them and you get that information, yeah. but you still need to um, provide some some kind of judgment. One thing I'm not so certain of, and maybe this is sort of the conjunction of what, you know, Graeber would call the bullshit jobs, as well as the the arrival of this new technology, is that we will see sort of growth in employment in the same way that we saw with the Industrial Revolution. I'm still very curious as to what is going to happen given some reports at the very least that some of the jobs that people are doing are aren't necessarily sort of you know that's the whole gravest whole thing with the bullshit jobs i.e that some people are just coming in and doing stuff but that doesn't actually provide extra value to the company or the, Mm -hmm. the world at large and um you had people making fun of especially in technology companies of people who seem to be just sort of sending emails every day. And that was sort of the the nature of their output. But coordination is important. You know, sending emails is an important thing, especially when you have a team of 10, 20, 30 people. Nobody sends the email, the meeting doesn't happen. I will um, wait and see whether or not there will be some increases at the very least in the potential for employment and uh, the, the benefits, you know, being a student of technology, uh, it is very evident to me that it is not always positives. Um, and you have the evangelists always preaching the positive side of things, but a lot of people get left behind. And if we are not careful with, with how we advance and present the technology and we don't provide backfills, retrainings, um, essentially like societal level infrastructure to ensure that people who maybe are out of a job will be included in the future economy, then we're going to be in deep trouble. Yeah. I, I think the, the way I think about the positive side of it is that there isn't just a bucket of jobs. And if a machine does one of those jobs, then there'll never be another job. Like what usually happens is 
when we automate certain things like we did in the industrial revolution, we find that we now have the time to do things we could have never done before and that we would have never imagined humans could even try to do. Uh, and so that's, that's the positive aspect. The, the aspect that you rightly point out is the transition is not always smooth. And so those new jobs aren't equally, you know, available to all the people whose jobs were displaced. And whatever that gap is, <laughs> is where the trouble is, right? You, you, uh, I don't know if the 1700s and the revolutions of the 1700s are entirely explained by the industrial revolution, but it was a complicating factor, right? Uh, so, you know, are we going to be able to move people from their replaced copywriting jobs into new endeavors? Uh, are they going to become entrepreneurs? Maybe. Uh, but that that's far from guaranteed. So being aware of that and being prepared for that does does seem very wise to me. Absolutely. And I think maybe one of the interesting differences is that when we moved to an agrarian um, artisan society to more an industrial society, there was an increase in the number of goods that needed to be produced. Mm -hmm. And because of that increase, there was an increased need for additional labor. And in that sense, technology was a vector for sort of the increased participation of uh, workforce, men and children alike, of course, yeah. uh, within that, that sort of societal endeavor. Now, we have, I think, a few interesting trends or influences that are touching the field of production or the field of business that actually maybe push us towards reducing production. The main thing that I'm thinking about is we have this knowledge now that we are maybe overproducing and it's, you know, engendering climate change and it's, mm -hmm. um, we're not being very careful with how we use the resources. Um, now we have the system that maybe we'll be able to forecast and determine the right amount of things we need to produce. Um, and it may be hard to justify the continued growth and expansion if we have a system that is able to determine what needs to be done sort of at a very high level, given its ability to pull all these numbers together. Hopefully for, at the very least, the American worker, the, the, the recommendation will be to hire more people. But if it isn't, we'll be in a very tough situation. Yeah. Or is there something that can produce, become an economic engine that isn't goods? Uh, you know, that, which is a big question. Yeah. I, I mean, service, the service economy is, is big, but can, can it, can it be everything is a, is a, that's a big ask. I want to, I want to get a little long term before we wrap up here. Uh, do you see down the road, far down the road, and and I, I was sort of hinting that this earlier when we were talking about the headsets and, and the integration and the brain chips. Uh, do you see us living alongside intelligent machines, even if they don't, even if we don't get AGI, even if we don't get artificial generalized intelligence, we, we get something that is close enough that it feels like something or do we merge with them? Do, do we, do we become them uh, or, or something else? It really depends on your philosophy, mm -hmm. I think. So I think people who are trans, uh, transhumanists want to sort of overcome the body. 
Neil Bostrom, who is um, one of you know one of the great thinkers in you know super intelligence and and in the um, um, artificial intelligence field, has this thing called Letter from Utopia, like written down the line, and he's writing from Utopia. And one of the things he mentions is this need that we have if we want to achieve all the things that humanity can achieve, we need to overcome the failures and the limitations of our body. And that idea and that belief, I think, is laden in a, in a lot of techno-optimism. You know, whether it be the, the longevity companies right now that you're seeing trying a bunch of different stacks of medication, you know, you don't have diabetes, but you take diabetic medication to lower blah, blah, because the impact. So there is really this desire to overcome the body. And because of that, I, for, I definitely foresee that if the implementation or the merging, as you say, of this technology with the body can help overcome it, then I think that it will be at least tried, if not sort of done completely. Mm. My, my sort of rebuttal or my sort of contribution, at least on the long term, is that, you know, we will have to, to borrow um, Hamlet's words, shuffle up this mortal coil, because it is essentially limited. We can only do so much with it. And in like true trans humanist fashion, I think there's maybe going to be another implement uh, that is a bit more durable than the human body. Uh, and so to me, and this is um, one of my video essays, I talk about the telos of technology, um, which is means like its finality, its end goal, the thing that it seeks to do. And I believe it is sort of full replacement of humanity and the abolition of being into this new thing that will overcome it. I'm not preaching for it. It's just my like prognostic, what mm -hmm. I'm seeing, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, reading the texts, but little by little, as we do these merges, as we add these implements, our bodies are fallible, right? They're amazing. They've gotten us for millions of years to the point where we are now, but there may be other things that people will consider as better and will slowly integrate yeah. them within themselves until there is nothing human left. So it's a Theseus ship kind of situation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We yes. just slowly replace bits and bits of ourselves until suddenly we're like, Oh wait, there's nothing. But that would that still be humanity at that point? That is a great question. I mean, yeah. um, a big part of that is this, I, this idea inherited from Plato, the dualism idea, also from Descartes, that mind and body are separate. And if we're able to just get the mind piece, mm -hmm. just the synapses, or maybe just the, the entire nervous system into some kind of different meat suit, if you will, <laughs> then the mind is what really defines humanity to answer your first question. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a dualist, but a lot of people, you know, across history and even now have this idea that these two things are separate and that perhaps our aim as technologists, as scientists, as researchers is to get, is to get um, to this point where we are only mind mm -hmm. and the body has evanesced. Yeah. We're, we're running the same operating system, just different motherboard. Yeah. <laughs> Upgrading the hardware. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but this is, this has been fantastic, Ruby. Thank you for, for taking the time to have a conversation with me about this. Before we wrap up though, I, I always like to do a little word game with folks. Uh, it's very simple. I just give them two words and they choose one and tell me why. Are you game? Uh, let's go. All right. 
uh, we'll, we'll, we'll stay along the theme for the first one. People or machines? I'm going with uh, people for sure. Um, uh, if we look at the scoreboard, I think people have a storied history of overcoming um, both adversity, uh, uh, a storied, a, a storied uh, record of uh, adaptability. Um, and, you know, in the grand uh, fight or war that will happen between people and machines in the future, um, I don't know that people will win, but I'll be rooting for them the whole time. <laughs> got it. Got it. It's not a prediction. It's a, it's a, a, a partisan pick, if you will. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think I'm with you too, by the way. Uh, sorry, machines. I probably shouldn't have said that in a recorded fashion. Uh, next one is uh, fast or slow zombies. Oof. I mean, for my sake, probably slow, slow zombies. Mm-hmm. Um, That's the practical choice. Like I can get yeah. away. Kind of, yeah, yeah. I get um, people who say fast because they think they're more entertaining or, or they can use them to their own advantage. Uh, it's, it's cause it's one I've asked multiple people. I would, I would, I would, um, um, reckon that fast zombies sort of get the job faster. And so maybe humanity is put out of its misery and then the whole, <laughs> that's okay. It just like they, you get it over with, yeah, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm slow zombies. All right. All right. Gotcha. Uh, Neil Stevenson or William Gibson. Oof, that's a very good question. It's an unfair question, to, to, yeah. to be clear. I wonder what they would say. Um, yeah, yeah. At this point in time, probably... Uh, it's going to give me a lot of enemies. Um, but... <laughs> They're, they're, they're I, yeah, you're not picking yeah, both, the best. You're just picking one. Yeah. Probably, probably Gibson. Um, but I mean, both amazing, both, uh, very difficult. It's like a two, two, two of your favorite children. It's, it's yeah, very yeah. difficult. And, and, and they're different as, as, as like as they are in many ways. They're, they're, they're very different. Um, what, what tipped you to, to maybe throw, you know, picking Gibson in this case? Uh, just because of, um, what I'm reading right now, I'm reading that, um, um, uh, the cycle. Let me just get the, the title out. Oh, the Baroque cycle. Um, my friend just put me on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my friend just recommended that and was saying how it was one of the best things. Just like stop everything you're doing and go get that. And so with that fresh in my mind, it's a bit of a recency bias right now. Uh, okay. Um, right. But yeah. Uh, this one's not going to, well, I, don't, I shouldn't say it and anything could make you an enemy, but this is less controversial. Uh, savory or dessert crepes? Um, my controversial opinion is I like, uh, I like, uh, you know, like crepes with, um, bacon. So I, it, it just like a like that that would encompass both the savory and the oh, sweet part of it. The crepe itself is just right. I guess it's slightly sweet, mm. um, and then I have some protein on the side with the bacon or whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that, I'm surprised. I thought everyone would pick dessert crepes uh, with this one, and it has been the opposite. Most people lean savory. 
Um, so it's, it's, it's something about humanity that I've discovered. Uh, dogs or cats? I have neither, frankly, but um, probably dogs. They're, they're, they're cool. I like, I like, I like dogs. Cool. dogs. Yeah. All right. Uh, AI or robots? Oh, great question. Um, I think my understanding of robots, at least at this moment in time, is that they will 100% uh, contain artificial intelligence. Is the question like embodied or disembodied? Yeah, the, the, that's the beauty of this game is I haven't made up any rules, so you can answer it however you want. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things that is very worrying at, about the idea of like just a pure computer AI is that it isn't necessarily bound by this like physical thing, especially mm-hmm. if it's connected to the internet and can replicate. Yeah. So the robot feels like it is at the very least manageable. You know, you could just take care of the robot if ever there was quote unquote existential risk. Yeah. Um, because it is this physical thing, but there's something about, you know, the, afford- you know, programs can replicate that's just like one of the affordances of programs and that has when i think ai i think just purely software just purely program i think over if the two were going at you know fighting each other i would i would go ai yeah i can see that all right last one dry or humid dry dry because i lived in um, um i lived in southeast china for a little bit and it was extremely humid. Mm. And when it is very humid, you can not go out. Like, you, you can't go outside. So yeah. it is <laughs> it is difficult. So I would definitely vote on on dry. Uh, well, Ruby, thank you for, for playing my word game uh, with me. And thank you so much uh, for being on the show. I really appreciate this. Of course, this was wonderful. Um, thank you for having me. If people want to find out more about what you're doing, uh, read your works, see your works, where should they go? Um, I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram being online is my thing. So being underscore on underscore line, um, very, very true to form and very on brand, but yeah, that's my, um, uh, and then my studio is called asterisk, uh, which is asterisk.com. Fantastic. Thank you again, Ruby. And thanks Thank to our so producers. Much. Oh, of course. Uh, thanks to our producers, Roger Chang and Anthony Lemos. Thank you for listening to this show and telling your friends about it. You can get an ad-free version of this show with Acast Plus. Click on access exclusive content at awordpodcast.com and we'll have a word with you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.